0: Greetings, darling. It seems if you've stumbled into listening to more Monsters, Madness, and Magic. Have no fear, dear. We won't bite hard.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now in this episode, I chat with actor, director, and stunt performer Neil Nubon about the evolution of motion capture, the Baldur's Gate 3 phenomenon, becoming a starian, method acting, and more. As always, thank you for listening, and if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Neil, take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, (laughs) fort builder, troublemaker, or all the above?
0: All the above. Um, (laughs) I'm the youngest of three, and I'm the youngest twin of a pair of twins. I was a massive book reader. I used to read, I think by the time I was eight, I was reading at least three or four books a week. Anything I can get my hands on. I'm one of the first books I remember reading of, of like a proper book, like a proper novel was Lord of the Rings. And then I read The Hobbit afterwards. And then I just got an Ursula Le Guin. I was a real nerd, actually. I was a real geek. And I was also a bit of a troublemaker. I was the youngest. So, and I'm Generation X. So we were raised kind of feral. Uh, my twin brother and I had a corrugated steel iron bin that we was a thing we used to play in. At the bottom of our garden. And looking back, I remember touching the edges going, wow, that's really sharp. I should just make sure when I dive in there, I should give myself some space. <laughs> so, yeah, I was, uh, what were the other categories? I remember Troublemaker and Book but Fort Builder. Definitely a fort builder. My twin and I used to play a lot together. He's a great guy. He's a cameraman, actually. Um, oh, well. He and I are still, we're still really close friends which is good. And what was the the first one? I forgot. Who. You said yeah, all, the all the above. The above. Yeah. yeah, all the above. I read everything from like classic like Shakespeare I used to read as a kid, oh, wow. all the way straight through to things like Ursula Le Guin and and, thing, and then also like really crappy sci-fi, not really crappy sci-fi novels. Like, I mean, they're wonderful and awful at the same time. Like the Deathland novels. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, which is kind of inspiration for some of the fallout stuff. They're pretty badly written. They are awesome pop bubblegum like fiction stuff, which are pure nonsense. And they sell—they have the same formula. Each book is kind of the same story again and again and again with different flavors and things. Right. But I used to love it. I used to also used to read history books quite a lot. Mm-hmm. So like Roman Empire, the, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire was a book I used to read quite a lot. I was that kid that used to read the dictionary every day. <laughs> uh, I don't know what it was. It was something about stories back even back then that I used to escape into. And i had a very very active super over i would say overactive imagination and I, I something about stories just always had me and then i found theater i got exposed to theatre. my mum took me to theater when i was a kid she she wanted to be an actor i think and and back in her day it was seen as a weird choice to mm. do so she ended up having a you know a more normal uh occupation i would say um more like you know not normal actually she worked in television um, but it was it was, so that's not actually normal either for back in the sixties. <laughs> but but for her it was like more of a safer job, I think. Um so when I expressed interest in stories and theatre, she got me interested. She used to take me we used to live not too far from Stratford upon Avon, mm. which is great. So I was very fortunate it was only a forty minute drive. So she would take me to Shakespeare and see RSC plays. And it was uh, it was truly breathtaking to see some of the most some, some of greatest the greatest actors. Yeah, some of the greatest British actors uh, in the last 60 years, I've seen quite a few of them on stage in the rounds doing Shakespeare. So for me, it was an interesting upbringing in that sense, because I spent a lot of time alone as well, mm-hmm. and a lot of time with my brother playing and making games. And if I wasn't doing that, I was reading. So yeah, I had a very, very rich start in terms of narrative storytelling. It was always a part, It was always a part of me from as early as I can remember. Uh, It was something in me, and I think that's why I decided to become an actor when I was about 15. I went to National Youth Theatre under the stewardship of Ed Wilson, who sadly passed away about probably about 15 years ago now, actually. He was an amazing mentor and very inspirational to a lot of the kids, myself included. And I just got the bug. I just realized that was what I was supposed to do with my life, or at least attempt to do with my life. And it was definitely a need, not just like a whimsical... Wouldn't it be nice to be an actor? It was like, I I must do this. I have to tell stories. Didn't think I was going to be good enough to be a writer. And I don't think I I don't have any painting, you know, brush ability. (laughs) I used to make awful paintings. And I can't make things like hobble things together very well. So for me, it was like, well, those things are out. So what else can you do as an artist to tell a story? And being an actor suited me very well. So, yeah. That was it.
1: All right, so you just mentioned your mother taking you to the theater when you were early yeah. when you were younger um so was there an, a specific aha or eureka moment you can point to where you thought oh that's it right there that's me Yeah I mean.
0: there was actually I have spoken about this publicly as well and it's to do with my work so I don't mind cause actually a lot of my public life I, my private life I don't talk about but as this this stuff is directly related to my work so I don't mind talking about it when I was 8 years old my mum took me down to London to see the original version of Cats and Brian Blessed played the big sort of vagabond cat. I can't remember the name of it. It's like Mr. Something or Other Cat. I can't remember the name of it now. And he was covered in like these furs. And he's got this cat makeup on, these massive whiskers and huge ears. And he looks like he's like a cat from the streets. that's lived his entire life on the streets. That's the conceit of the character. And in the, in-, in the interim, he used to stay on stage and invite any kid that wanted to come and see- speak to him. So he had been there sweating under the lights in full makeup, this full massive costume. Brian Blessed, who's RSC legend, just sitting there on this sort of podium. And the kids would all come up, line up, and you have a chat with them. And I don't know, do you know, you know, who Brian? Yeah, is? I do. You know, I do. Mm-hmm. Sorry, no, he talks like that. Hello, <laughs> what's your name? So even when he's whispering, he's booming his voice at you in this full voice, sort of RSC trained uh, very big sort of like personality. So when you're eight years old and you're seeing basically a catman booming whispers at you, it's quite intimidating. For some reason I decided to wait until all the kids, so I was very polite as a kid. I, was, I hope I'm still quite polite now. But, but basically I, my mum was like up here and I was down on the stage and she just watched me let every child go ahead of me, let every child go past and every go, uh, next child, next child, next child, until it was just he and I on the stage. And the interval was basically over. And she's sitting there going, what is he doing? <laughs> like, I told him to be polite, but he's gonna miss his chance. And then I got to speak to him. I don't really remember what we said. It was something like, oh, you're a very polite young man. And I was like, hello, <laughs> like, you're amazing. And that was it. And then I got back to my mum and my mum said to me, she told me a story. And apparently I said, to, what did she say? She said, why did you do that? Why did you let every kid get? You were the first in the queue. You ran down there before anybody. Why did you let everybody else go ahead of you? And apparently I said, I just wanted it to be him and I he and I on the stage alone together. And at that point, my mum was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And from that really, that day onwards, I remember being in a taxi cab in London, seeing like rain and people and all this energy about London. I remember thinking, I can do that. I think I can do that. I wanna be that guy on the stage, meeting kids or people, and entertaining people and telling stories. So I think that, that was the pivotal moment for me that I realized I, I'm gonna be an actor. Have you, yeah.
1: have you seen Brian since then?
0: I have. Yeah, that's the crazy thing. I bumped into, I was doing a photo shoot for a film, uh, a film or TV series. It was a TV series. And he was also doing a a reunion for Zed Cars, which was a 50s TV show in Britain about police officers and cars. It was a bit, you know, 50s television, mate. It wasn't exactly like hard-edged or anything, but it was very popular. So he was doing like a reunion cast, how they, you know, 50 years later, whatever, how are they? And I saw him and I was like, oh, wow. That's Brian Blessed. I went up to him and went, There is no possible way you'd know who I am or recognize me. We met one time when I was eight, when he was doing cats and blah, blah, blah. I told him the story and he went, Oh, are you are you still an actor? I went, Yeah, I became an actor. He was like, Oh, that's marvelous. And guy, then he wrote me this enormous long monologue. Uh, on a, I had a play of of Mice and Men because I'm a cliche. <laughs> oh, I have a copy of Mice and Men just in my back. A cliche. I went, All oh, I have is this. This is deeply now embarrassing. <laughs> And he signed it, and at the end, he put this little picture of a cat, and he sent this really lovely message about being an actor and following your dreams. And I was just like, wow, that was that was amazing. Like you obviously don't know who I am, but you accepted the story. And then you gave me generosity again and wrote this enormous monologue of yeah. me having followed my dream, and it was just really beautiful. So, yeah, I got to meet him again about like twenty odd twenty five years later, I think it was. That's like, a great like, story. It's great, man. Yeah. <laughs> for the young Gordon's kids. Out, yeah, I was going to say for the young kids listening out
1: there, uh, Brian Blessed is Boss Nye and uh The That's Phantom right. Menace.
0: Flash Gordon if you're a little older. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> Neil, when you think back to formative films and TV shows you grew up on, what comes to mind?
0: Yeah. I used to have insomnia as a kid. So I used to watch films. I mean, my parents gave me a television set, rightly or wrongly, a black and white, old black and white one. And there used to be a great thing called Cult Corner in the 80s, 90s. So Colt Corner played random, crazy movies, everything from Tremors to Quatermass Experiment to Hammer House of Horror Films. I, I watched The Seventh Seal, mm. you know, it was really like Bergman, it was a really wide, eclectic. I, re- I remember watching the original Dawn of the Dead, um, Giorgio Romero's. Yeah. It, it was amazing. So I had this, cra- the Triffids, you know, I had this crazy eclectic digest in the age of about eight or nine. To the age of about 13, 14, possibly 15, 16, actually. I was a bit, I'm probably a bit older than that, of watching these crazy old black and white or modern or cult movies at nighttime when I couldn't sleep. I just used to watch movies and just pass out in front of the television. So I I had this sort of, like, it was like a secret world of, cool interesting yeah. weird films and great performances and and stuff as a you know as a kid arguably i shouldn't have been watching <laughs> uh, <but laughs> preaching no to the choir <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was in my bedroom so it was just like just watching this black and white box tv and i learned a lot kind hearts and coronets i watched i remember thinking thinking that's alec guinness playing all of the cat all of the main characters of the, of the family and just always going, wow, you can do that as an actor. Again, just feeding me all these different ideas of tonality. and uh, Obviously, I didn't know any of the methodology of being an actor at that point. But for me, it was a great digest of possibility, mm. of character possibility, of character work. And I got, a, I got very obsessed with the idea of playing, of being a character actor, which has its own problems early on in my career, I would say, because I always try to fight against what I look like, which is why games has been so brilliant. Because uh, I almost quit acting before I, I got into games, very close to quitting acting. Just because it's hard being an actor, it was just frustrating and not always getting what you want. And then games allowed me to take my face off and be a character actor. And that's what I am now, which is amazing. And I feel very blessed for the people giving me opportunities, which has been great.
1: While we're on that subject of theater and sort of... Game acting. A lot of folks that I speak with that work in motion capture and games specifically say that, that motion capture is a very happy medium between the stage and the screen. It's more closer it to the stage.
0: It is. I now teach nonprofit workshops, so we pay our crew obviously, but we don't make profit off the workshops. We try and keep it as low as possible for the actors to be able to do one day of mocap and then paid for the course. But we always teach people it is the happiest of medium between externalized performance, that's a bit larger than life of theater and the intimacy and immediacy of film. And then you smash them together, and then you walk the fine line with imagination between the two. So you're moving a little bit more like theater with t- great intent, not arbitrary movements. They have to be sort of with great intent all the time, even if you're just standing still. But you can have camera right here. So you can have a little twitch of the eye, and that can sell everything that you need to know about the character's experience at that moment, it- fictitiously, truthfully, in that moment so you have this incredible thing where there is a camera anywhere and sometimes you get a a camera very specifically it's going to be on this side where you have to take a base pose which is the way we start and finish a lot of movements specifically in game as well as in cinematic sometimes even you know you have to play to a camera here like film sometimes you don't know where the camera could be you're just playing the scene and the director will block because i direct as well but the director um will block you with a sense of where the camera probably will be that probably won't be a conversation much for the actors unless it's critical. So I directed a game called Deliver Mars alongside the narrative director, Rainer Arkham. And Rena and I knew where the camera position was going to be because weeks before in our pre-production meetings, we set the cameras where he would like them to be. And we adjusted blocking as I thought it should be with him, et cetera, et cetera. But we never really talked much about where the camera was going to be with the actor. Occasionally in time with our amazing lead actor, Elise Chappell, who's also nominated for a golden joystick as best actor, which is great. Amazing. Elise would take okay, the camera's going to be coming in like this, this, sort of pulling into a very close, extreme close-up. So just bear that in mind for your performance, because she's a TV and film actor. But most of the time, we weren't really concerned with the camera in terms of telling the actor. We just wanted the actor to be living in the present moment with each other as an ensemble and really just going for it. And trusting that with a little bit of blocking, like leave the chair this side or leave the chair that side, that because they're all really well trained performers, they know that they they can't sort of just hide down on a movement because obviously there's no cameras going to pick them up. So right. they're obviously playing out a little bit like stage, but they're also free that they don't have to worry too much about the camera movements. They're just playing with each other. So because, we managed, because we we knew what the camera angles were and what were critical and what were open, it gave a great sense of just playing the moments, just like, just like this. So it is a happy medium between the two. The technicalities from both come into it. I think mm. it's a new methodology, personally. I think performance capture is a whole new technical methodology, which takes from all the best other mediums and creates something quite new in the middle.
1: And it's only going to get more technologically mm. advanced as time passes, obviously. Just before we get too far away, this is something I like to ask everyone, because you never know. Uh, what scared you as a kid? I'm not going to tell you.
0: A few, things, a few things scared me, but they taught me a lot. I will say that. I had a few things that scared me, but they taught me a lot. I am the person I am because of them. So it's private, but I learned from them. And I think that was a really cool experience to understand that I have the power to evolve myself. Right. And that was something that I think stayed with me through life, that I never really thought of the cavalry coming. You know, I've never had the attitude the cavalry's coming to save me. Very early on, I kind of learned the cavalry's not coming. You are the cavalry, I feel. So you, people are there to support and love you and help you. But I personally view for myself, for my life, not for other people, me, that I am the cavalry. I have to evolve, I have to change, I have to challenge myself, and I have to grow. And because of that, I feel very empowered and very strong as a human being, which means I hope I can be a good dad to my daughter as well. Well said. Yeah, because of it.
1: Hmm. what about your very first time on stage whatever you consider that to be did it go off without a hitch did your pants fall down or anything like that
0: (laughs) (laughs) it was a living nightmare it was very scary very nerve-wracking this wasn't my very first time on stage my very first time on stage was at school that was awesome i was completely fearless (laughs) Uh, and i used to do plays all the time i did like uh, uh, Pinter plays Uh, we did like musicals and stuff i loved it my first semi-professional play that i did was actually with a thing called central television workshop in edinburgh festival and we played to an audience of two people in a capacity of 150 because edinburgh is like that Mm. (laughs) the first show you put on nobody knows anything about you and if you don't sell the tickets like i'm really sure you're hard on the streets because you have to go on the streets and perform stuff no one turns up because nobody knows that you're on (laughs) yeah so we performed to two people one of whom left (laughs) so we ended up at the interval, all the, I was a young actor. I was like 15, 16. I wasn't even professional, really. But it was like a professional piece. I was just a young kid in it. And we were like freaking out, this is one person. And somebody, I can't remember who it was, somebody in the cast went, we've got an audience. It happens to be one person. So now we're just gonna play for an audience of one. And we did, and it was actually really fun. And actually, I'm really glad I had that experience because then when I did stuff at the Royal Court play, very big actors, amazing work, really cool, cool plays to to digest and then try and perform. I did some scary stuff, but I wasn't really that scared. It was like, well, I've had the worst experience I could have. Actually, no, I was naked on stage and it was November. That was also another time (laughs) when it was pretty scary. That was pretty scary. (laughs) So between those two, anything else? Whatever, it's fine. I played to an audience. Everyone, I've been naked on stage in front of people at crotch level. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else that happens, it's just a bit of a. Story. It's just an anecdote for years later. You know, <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's almost. It sounds like just you know, just from the outside looking in, it's almost like a band. You know, whether you're playing in front of a, a local dive bar yeah. or in an arena, you have to do the same yeah. songs or play it the same yeah, way. Man. And
0: sometimes things go really badly wrong, and you just have to rock and roll with it. It's just like it's gigging. It is. It is gigging. Yeah, live audiences, man, I love it. I mean that's why I love performance capture so much as well because it keeps the best elements of theatre I love it for that and uh, I started in theatre and I I consider myself lucky that I get to do both simultaneously now theatre and film at the same time and I work longer in the volume than I ever would do on stage or on a film set which is also another thing that people that may not be aware of that you actually do more per hour work acting in the volume which is amazing
1: Neil did you ever have to deal with stage fright was it something you had to overcome
0: No not really I was lucky I was very fearless I was very fearless looking back at my younger self I was some of the risks I've taken in my life and the adventures I've been on the crazy stuff I've done I was fearless utterly fearless I never worried about being bad I think I used to worry as a younger actor about being taken seriously mm. That for me was that was my problem I think I was always trying to prove I was good not because I needed to hear I was good If anything when I'm working I hate to people saying you're really good. It's like I just I only hear that. I just want to hear that you're happy. We're moving on. Right. You know, I don't need that. I need that. Maybe afterwards. That's great. Well, thank <laughs> you. Uh, the award thing is like, wow, okay, good, amazing. But holy, holy! Can I swear on your show, by the way? Yeah, it completely holy fine. Holy shit! <laughs> <You> know, that's <laughs> <like fast laughs> That's scary, you know, for me. And but also after the the job, it's like great. I thank you very much. I can take that. It's amazing. During the shoot, I don't want to hear that. I'm good. <laughs> I just don't want to get on the So. So I don't get stage fright, not really. I used to get very nervous in auditions for the wrong reasons, for proving that I was good, Mm. because I I had a chip on my shoulder, I guess. But in games, because I could take my face off and just try character, it freed me up to just not worry about being respected and just to offer up my work. So I started really enjoying auditions because I realized very quickly that that is a big part of, that's actually more of the work sometimes than the job is. My job as an actor, when I don't have the project, that is my job to audition. That is the work. So when you get that in your head, you're like, cool. I'm not worried about getting the gig. I haven't got the gig. It's not mine because nothing's mine. But I have an opportunity to show, this is my character I'm making for you with the script that you sent me. There you go. And if you want to work again together, call me and we'll, we'll do the project i think the second that an actor frees themselves from being good which we all go through i went through that as well that whole thing you just focus on the audition being this is the opportunity to work with an audience that has immediate feedback and the director that wants to play with you so the second i started doing that I, yeah it was amazing I, I love auditioning now i really um, i often say to people you know if said so people say i want to work with you it's great whenever you want to audition me do because i like it mm-hmm. it's a good thing But then when you get to work again with the same people and evolve the audition, the work you've done into the full project, that's a gift. That's just (laughs) playtime.
1: Yeah, and I like to ask this to pretty much every actor I speak with because I I feel like to non-actors, the term method acting has become muddled. Oh, man,
0: people use it in the wrong way.
1: What is method acting to you and what's your method?
0: Sure, it's easy to do the other way around. So my methodology is a very wide tool set. And I'm constantly adding to it as well. The, the the work and the craft doesn't stop. It's a lifelong journey for me. I know everything for, I've, sorry, let's resave that. I don't know everything. <laughs> I have engaged with method for four or five years as training, and then I've been doing, using it for the last 25 years or so, or 15 or 20 years, I guess. I've done things like Meisner. I've learned, yeah, Malgrim's work, not very well, but I have learned it, which is uh, Laban based animal workshops community latte mask work some circus stuff some tumbling some dance some singing all this kind of stuff all of it comes into a tool chest that I carry around with me including some stuff that I've invented myself that I think works for me and it's all my methodology if we're talking about method acting that is Stanislavski based which was a a couple hundred years ago now, based from an amateur. He was an amateur sort of, well, he was, he was an actor and a director, but he was sort of more interested as a, a lover of the art. So I don't think he needed necessarily to... Actually, I'm not entirely totally sure about his financial background. Let's just say that he created the method. I'm not really going <laughs> worrying worry too much about this, I've forgotten the history of it. But he created the method. And it was really because he was dissatisfied with actors coming into his plays as a director that seemed staid and boring and obvious and cliched. And he was trying to work out why was that. Why they keep coming in with the same kind of lines, the same kind of delivery. Why didn't they feel real? And so the method was really about how do you as an actor fill out the character's life by trying to live the life in a way. It doesn't mean you become a a mass serial killer if you're playing a serial killer. It just means you investigate elements and habits of the life. You start using substitution, personalization, and other tools and methods to then get a sensation experientially, of what it would be like to walk in this person's shoes from morning to dusk. So for instance, you might start playing the end of underf- how do they eat, how do they? What do they make, what's the first thing they make in the morning is a drink, or what was something in their life that is habitual and how does that habit develop? And you start exploring their life and then you might take their life on a little bit in the safety of home, you might walk the streets with them, you might do some exercises with yourself on set, and you might stay in the voice the whole time and just talk like, oh, "I'd like the, uh, the I'd like the bacon, please." Yeah, that's great. You know, just if, if that helps you stay in the character, do it. What I think is wrong, and what I think I hear about in popular culture, and which is bullshit, is when people start acting badly to other people because they're method and they want to be in their character. That's bullshit. Mm-hmm. There is no, there's nothing in method acting that says you must be the character, live the character and treat other people with disrespect to make you a great artist to live the life. It's bullshit. You might want to, I mean, Daniel Lewis is a very famous method actor. He will take on aspects of the person's life and sustain it, but he's also polite and respectful to people from what I've heard. I don't know him, but I've heard he's very nice and very pleasant to everybody. He might spend the whole of lunch learning carving a meat pile because he's getting into characters, but Pete the Butcher, right, in Gangs of New York, but he's not going to be bad to somebody. Then I've heard of you know I don't know him. Jared Leto reportedly played a lot of very mean tricks in people as his methodology. I don't really think that's cool. I think that's unnecessary, and I think it's also stretching maybe the point of what you're trying to achieve, which is not to cause other people discomfort or harm or pain or anything or, or piss them off. It's actually just to focus yourself into the life so that when these situations in the fictitional truth occur, you can have these organic reactions to other things that you may not have predetermined or thought of, they just feel right, there are impulses that come out of you because you know the characters so well. you're living the characters' habits. So with the in, for instance, I spent four years with him, I did a lot of work behind the scenes as we were shooting, also before and also during, to develop him as a character, to have habits that he would do habitually to certain reactions, because we didn't have the full script, um, we were finding out the story as our characters was were sorry, which was a trip, which was amazing. <laughs> so I would find out something when he would find out about something. We're like, wow, okay, that's what's happening next. Cool which didn't worry me because I knew how he'd react to it. Because I'm now, i have really fleshed out his life. And again, props to the amazing writer, Stephen Rooney and all the writers that contributed towards the starring. Because of that rich text and there were a lot of work I did and the great directors we worked with at Pitstop Productions and Larian as a whole being a beautiful company to work with. I knew what he would do. It was like, oh, I know he's gonna do this. So the conversation st- changed from the first few weeks um, with the directors saying, okay, this is the character, this situation, and um, this is kind of how you're going to be doing it. Two, this is the character, this situation. How do you feel? You know, what do you feel? give me one that you feel the starring would do? And that happened with all of the actors that spent a long time on this. I would say, I directed on it as well. I definitely would ask the actor. You've lived the character longer than I have, so tell me how you see this moment for the character. I might shape it and direct to you in a way that I know needs to happen for the next moments to work. But if you have a reaction, follow it. Because you're living it, and that's kind of in a, in a very long-winded way, I guess. That's kind of what method acting is. It's a set of tools Stanissky um, developed Uta Hagen, uh, Lee Strasberg, and these amazing teachers then developed it into more modern day application. But essentially, it's filling the life of the character truthfully so that you can have organic impulses and moments without having to conceive can contrive them mm-hmm. without having to. and also it also, breaks up any bad habits that you have to stop them coming into the character. So that's the other thing as well, I guess, with acting, is that I'm always trying to get away from myself. And characters and I share similarities, of course we do. But really my aim is to try and get away from as many habits as I can. Then it really feels like something I can get my teeth into, you know?
1: Yeah. So how did the transition, you started on stage, how did you go from stage to the screen and now to motion capture?
0: I was very lucky. I got quite a few plays back to back as a young actor. The Royal Court was the first time I think I looked myself in the mirror and realised legitimately I'm now professional. With Dominic Cook, Daniel Evans and some amazing actors in that cast. There was a play called Other People by um, Christopher Shinn, who's an amazing New York playwright. And I was very lucky, it was really early on. And then after that I got spotted for a couple of films. I worked with Jeroen Creve and Stephen Fry and Greg Wise on a film called Don Decking van der Hemmel, which is a Dutch film which the English title is Discovery of Heaven, mm. which is based on a massive Harry Mulisch book which was very popular in Europe. And that was a real interesting experience and then i got to work in thailand on another film with liam cunningham and roger allen and a whole bunch of amazing people like that and then it just sort of i started doing a few films back to back and that was great and then i started doing tv and tv i started getting more i was seen very mainstream stuff because obviously my look was very striking i didn't look very british i don't think i have you know Slavic roots and Scottish roots and all this kind of stuff, but not very English roots. So for me, it was like suddenly I started going up against the problem of stereotype. And then the work I was being offered was, was great because I, I would do it to the best of my ability, but it wasn't always the best quality stuff that I wanted to get my teeth into. And I started developing bad habits and I carried on training as a way of combating that. And I've been very lucky. I've been with Roberto Wallach and also Giles Foreman as my mentors for decades now. And they've really helped me shape into the actor I am. And then I got to a point where I was going up against people with profile, and I couldn't beat them because I looked like them, but I couldn't get the job. And then I slowly started starving as an actor, and <laughs> <laughs> uh, making my way into the heady, wonderful world of catering, where I spent many years in between acting gigs catering for rich people, which had its ups and downs. Uh, I was with a brilliant company called Seller Society, uh, Bertie de um and Adam, they're, they're amazing. And actually they were very cool human beings because most of us were actors, writers, musicians, whatever, trying to get through our careers. And they were really cool with us. They looked after us really well. So that saved me a little bit, but I just couldn't make any money. And eventually got to the point where I was really badly. I was financially in a very, I was in jeopardy. So I was financially really badly off and I was making mistakes and I was depressed and I was not having a good time. and. All in the pursuit of being an artist, and I was, this was, I said in the speech um, on Friday, uh, I actually made a mistake because I was so overwhelmed. I said, I almost quit gaming, and but gaming saved me. And what I meant to say, I wasn't right. What I meant to say was, I almost quit acting, and games saved me. I was just very nervous. <laughs> so I one, can imagine. won an award. <laughs> so what I meant to say was, I was about to quit acting. And at that point, 2008, 9, I was actually seriously having the thoughts of, I should quit acting. This isn't working. I am almost, I'm 30 now. At that Mm. point, I was 30. It was like, I am not making money. I am, every month, I am a couple hundred quid away from bankruptcy. I cannot see a way out, and I'm in debt, and I'm in jeopardy, and I'm barely hanging on to the very cheap falling apart room that I have in this falling apart house. (laughs) it was just, everything was bad. And then a few years before that, I, I actually did almost hit bankruptcy before that as well. And I ended up with just a bicycle and a backpack, and I had nowhere to stay. And I spent 24 hours cycling around London, not knowing what to do. So technically, for that one night, I had nowhere to live. And then luckily, a friend of mine took me in. I lived on a couch, literally on a couch. And then I lived on another couch and another couch. And then very quickly, all this time had gone past. And I had just about got myself to the point where I could maybe afford a room somewhere. It was awful. And mm. I do not recommend anybody being an actor unless you need to be an actor. So then I met games and it was by accident. I was a gamer. I read PC Gamer magazine, actually, funny enough, ironically. <laughs> uh, Future magazines, which is wild considering what happened on Friday. Yeah. Um, and in the corner of it was, a, it, was a, it was an article about voice work with Keeley Hawes, I think it was, he was playing, voicing Tomb Raider. And in the mm. corner of the article was a tiny little picture about motion capture because nobody knew what the fuck it was, right? So I saw that tiny little picture and went, that's theater and film, I think. That looks like theater and film. It's like somebody's filming theater. So I think I can do that. So the voice acting aside, because I was a gamer anyway, I thought, well, I could be an actor in voice work. I should also pursue that. But right now I'm going to focus on this. So I contacted Audio Motion, Brian Mitchell, and Stacy Boyzell at the time. I said, here, I'm an actor. I know martial arts, I know gun work. I know skills. I can horse ride, I can archer. I can do all these crazy skills that I learned as a geeky child, and a teenager, and a young man. I think i can work i can think i can be an asset would you give me an audition and at the time ubisoft were looking for ghost recon future soldier back in 2009-10 and they said come in for an audition and so i did an audition like it was theater and apparently i did pretty well and they invited me on to play 30k at least the body doubling for 30k i got to work with u.s navy seals i got to work with a whole bunch of crazy actors clive standen Who's like the lead in wanted and all these American TV shows and Vikings. He I met Clive during that period. That's how we met. And we used to do Mocap together, which is really cool. Very cool. So yeah, really cool. So I got in suddenly got into this world and Brian was incredibly kind. And I said, This is I want to do whatever whatever you got. You just throw it at me. I'm I'm up for it. And so they were, they championed me and they gave me all this work and a lot of people gave me advice. There wasn't any training, you just did it and worked it out. And we all worked out problems together because there was no solution because it was like, nobody done it before. How do you do this thing in sequence when, when nobody knows? So let's just try and work it out. And that was great for a long time. Got to work with Imaginarium and a whole bunch of other studios, you know, Centroid, a whole bunch of other studios as well. And suddenly I found myself uh, realizing that I this is something that I like doing a lot. And then um, I went through a divorce, I had a kid, and I realized that I don't have a choice anymore. I have to make money. And I just went, games, that's it voice work, the whole thing, I'll just focus on that. And I get TV and film, which is amazing. But I stopped worrying about my career. Um, my daughter was born. I got divorced sadly afterwards, but you know, we're amicable. We get on really well, my ex and I, which is great besides my daughter. And I realized oh, I'm just going to make money for my daughter now. I'm going to be, that's what I'm going to do. So I'm just going to focus on games. I've got nothing to lose. And I just relaxed, I relaxed about me as an actor and just went, I just want to play now. And games have embraced me completely. I feel incredibly fortunate to have started in a period of time where nobody was acting in games in right. mocap because nobody wanted to do it, nobody took it seriously. And I did, and the, those of us that were doing it did because we saw the future where it is now. And I feel grateful that so many people championed me. And then I got to work with Quantic Dream, got to work with Square Enix, and then Capcom, and then Sony, and then so on and so forth. And suddenly I found myself now looking back at 15 years of work, more or less 130-odd titles, whatever it is. Wow of going, this was what I was fighting to get as a younger actor in TV and film and killing myself and feeling awful and bad and and terrible and no money at all and blah, blah, blah. And actually, all I needed to do was just take my hands off, focus on why I did this in the first place and then just be transparent with everybody and try and be generous with everybody and be professional and just try and do it. And actually, it was just weirdly the most straightforward Journey in some ways through other people's generosity. You know,
1: just give us an idea though. That first game, I think you said it was Ghost Recon. Uh, yeah, tech-wise ghost recon to now like how much has changed motion capture wise
0: the actual logistics haven't changed that much mm. the fixed cameras were there's fixed cameras around a set volume the cameras have increased in numbers um the tech the cameras quality have increased dramatically but they still fire they used to fire off near infrared light these markers which i've had tattooed on my body <laughs> uh, and those fire back they, they reflect so that's what the camera captures the reflections highly the, the the markers are neoprene like switch. Uh, wetsuit stuff. They um, coat it with a very re- reflective material. Mm. So they fire that, that back and you create a skeleton. On top of that goes a rig, and on top of that goes the skin of the character. Back in those days, we didn't have real time. It was just a bunch of balls, like a whole bunch of yeah. disembodied balls floating around. And yet, you could still see nuance of performance. Because the cool thing about optical systems like ViCon, for instance, they, go, they are millimeter accurate. So if you do that with your hand, you'll pick that up in data. They're very, very accurate. Even then, they were pretty accurate. Now they're super accurate. because that's mm. been evolved? So that hasn't really changed that much. But What did come in? Because we used to have like face markers. That was a, that was a new thing. Face markers on our face to capture face data. About 80 markers glued to your face, <laughs> of which you'd eat at least five per lunch. <laughs> I mean, I must have eaten about at least a hundred quid's worth of mar- tiny markers of my tongue. They're very expensive as well. That was pain in the, in the ass <laughs> It's like, oh but they were, it was fun it was like okay now the face is coming into core okay we did do that and then hmc's came in that was a whole new trip and having to work out how to hug people or kiss people or or eat chicken and you know a skewer which was also a trip or smoke or something that was all a whole new exploration in a very exciting way and so the new technology came in then you've got now stretch sense gloves for instance or, or, or wireless gloves so now your finger data is really well captured, mm-hmm. whereas before you have these big blocks on your fingers. And if you hit the deck on a stunt, on you'd have them on your nail. So maybe your arm goes off the crash mat onto concrete usually. And it's metal with a plastic hard ball on top. You feel that when yeah. you've just done a dive of two meters and bam, you feel that shit. So, <laughs> so things luckily have started getting really fun and, and comfortable. <laughs> That's right. been the biggest change. But I think in terms of performance, the biggest change is the fidelity of the software, of 3D graphic. That, I remember doing Final Fantasy 16. It came out, we did it in 2015, came out in 16, I think it was. And I remember th- seeing it, I did this as the character because somebody mentioned somebody's name and it's painful. It's his Dead's brother in arms. And I just did this little involuntary wince as a character in the shoot. And they picked up on it and they kept it. I remember seeing this big cinema screen in Los Angeles for the screening of the film. I thought it's Fun Fantasy King's And my Nick's I'm playing I body doubled Nick's and then Aaron Paul later did the voice after we did the performance. So he then put his own performance on top. But the face stuff is all me and the body and stuff. And I just did this all like that. It's just tiny imperceptible. And they kept it in and it registered really well. I remember watching it in 2015 going, That's it, we've arrived. We've now arrived at a place where nuance is captured well in animation okay now we're cooking so then you know Planet of the apes came along that was awesome and then you know resident evil was really fun character work and now leading to boulders gate 3 now we have complexity of character we've got deep de- uh, layers of characters and good representation as well better representation and more complicated and not just an achievement of you slept with that person great you know it's now complicated real relationships You've seen these evolutionary stages and it's awesome to be a part of it. I feel very, very blessed and very grateful to be a part of it right now.
1: So let's talk uh, Baldur's Gate 3, Neil. uh, Was it a typical audition? Was it just like any other audition (laughs) that you remember? Nothing special?
0: Kind of yes, kind of no. I remember working out what it could be very quickly. (laughs) I was on Final Fantasy 16 doing performance capture and some combat and stunt stuff, some basic stunts, in Hungary for five months. I have a production company called Performance Captured Limited, and um, we were hired to do casting and also consultation on performance capture shoot with Schlock, which is Ollie Chance and Morgan, and uh, shooting at digital um, digital motion, digit motion, sorry, digit motion in Hungary. And um, whilst we were there, somebody said there's this thing going around called Drakenfels, and you should audition for it. So we all auditioned for it. I was like, Drakenfels, that's 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 from that's from Warhammer. That's a Warhammer Roleplay adventure and character. Shit, that's cool. They're doing Warhammer Roleplay. All right, I'm up for that. Yeah, yeah. And then I looked at the the, the races that were sending through. It's like, that's a gnome, sure. That's a tiefling. It's called Dragonkin, but that's clearly a tiefling. <laughs> and that's that, and that's this, and that's a drow, and all the stuff. I was like, that's Dungeons and Dragons, man. And I get it. It's a, it's a fake name, obviously. So it's like, okay, they're using dra- It's like, wait a second, Dungeons and Dragons. The only two that I know of in games really that come to mind are uh, Icewind Dale series and Baldur's Gate oh my God, it's Baldur's (laughs) Gate. I was
1: just like, whoa. You figured it out yourself?
0: (laughs) Yeah, but well, I didn't figure out, I didn't know completely, but I had a very good gut instinct that that's Baldur's (laughs) Gate. So I looked at all the races and I was like, please select three. I was like, I did (laughs) 10. I did (laughs) 10 auditions. I I can't remember, maybe it was eight. I don't know the number, but I know I did way more than I should have done and just submitted to all of them. The only ones I didn't do is Half Lane Dwarf, I think it was. because I think I was pushing it a little bit (laughs) by six foot two stages. (laughs) Uh, but I did, all, I did so many auditions. Like I have to be in this game. And then uh, Josh Whedon from Pit Stop Productions, he and I worked on the DLC for Resident Evil Three, for the the extra game, Resident Evil Resistance, I think it's called. Uh, and it's like an escape room DLC game. It's really fun and he remembered me for that so he was the one that suggested to jason latino and farang also who's, who's from larian that i should maybe go for a starian so they got me in for a demo for an, it was like an audition also work I was actually working on the game properly as a demo thing i did it and they liked it and they signed off for me and swen signed off for me as well and stephen rooney i didn't know i only found out recently when i met him uh, recently that he also had seen it and when yeah but he feels right Mm. And that's how I started. And then after a couple of weeks of working out the character with everybody, then I found a Astarian properly, and then we started cooking. It was great.
1: So if you just had to guess, guesstimate here, how many total hours did you spend recording voice lines for a Astarian?
0: I don't know. I have a rough idea of how many sessions I did. So if you give me, if you give me one second. Sure, no problem. I'll give you a guesstimate. I can't, this is not official. And you can't hold me to it because it may be no completely bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. So, this is a guesstimate, my best guess. I think it m- not including motion capture, because I also did in-game locomotion, mocap, motion matching, that kind of stuff in the game as well. But just for a Starian, you're looking seven, somewhere between seven 800 hours of performance capture over four years, maybe? I think, but I don't know. That's a guesstimate, folks, so I don't know. It's not official. <laughs> Please don't quote me on that because it's not official. You can quote me. Just remember, it says it's not official. It's a guess, something like that. Maybe have yeah, you? Maybe. maybe have
1: you spent like close to any amount of time close to that with any other character?
0: No, this is definitely the longest I've ever spent on a character, and this is the the largest volume of work I've ever done for any character. I've been on games for a couple of years. Like uh, Kingsglaive itself was a year and a half of work, eight weeks for Plant the Apes last frontier. I was in every day but one. Resident Evil Village actually was only a few weeks, you know, of work in total. This is by far the largest amount of time I've ever spent on a character, and the longest I've ever had to continually work and develop and evolve a character. Which is why Estarion, apart from the fact it's beautifully written and the game is a masterpiece from Larian across the board with everybody's passion being thrown into it, this is why starring means so much to me. I've had I've lived with him longer than anybody, mm. and I'm not really ready to let go of him yet. No, even though I have to. Uh, <laughs> don't. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so, maybe not. yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was just constantly there. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, I did speak to one of my... I spoke to, I can't remember who it was now. I spoke to somebody. I was asleep, and, I, and they asked me a question. I went, no, that's all right, darling, you go ahead. And then went, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, and I was like, what, what, what? <laughs> What was that? I was like, what are you talking about? It's like, you spoke to me like a star. I was like, why? <laughs> <laughs> it was weird. It was a really strange moment. So clearly.
1: Well, Neil, we just uh, mentioned it earlier, but for, obviously you won the uh, Golden Joystick Award for Best Supporting I Performance. Did, I
0: did, which was still a, a weird surprise. I was not, I, w- I, I didn't actually prepare a speech for it because I just didn't think it was going to. I thought it was great. not. I was nominated. Amazing. Job done. That was like, wow. I'm nominated. I'm ecstatic. And then I wasn't prepared for winning. (laughs) And the fact that it was Troy Baker, who's a friend, and Maggie Robertson, who's a beautiful human being, and also a a real-life, really close, well, both Troy and Maggie are friends. Maggie is a super close friend to me. Troy, I've known known for a few years as well. To have those two on stage and to have Maggie give it to me, because I was her date at BAFTA when it was, you know, and when she was going for the amazing and and quite, and very well-deserved success of all her stuff. I was, I was championing her, supporting her, going, yeah, go for it. And to have that the other way around was just, that was just icing on the game, awesome. man. That was unbelievable, yeah, yeah.
1: I just spoke with Maggie not long ago.
0: Maggie is a consummate, beautiful, talented, dedicated actor. She is absolutely breathtaking. I remember meeting, I met her as her character first. Kind of, because I missed the I missed read through when I was flying in from, from wherever the hell I was in the world to L.A. to start. I was going one job to another. So I missed the read through and I landed pretty much like woke up the next day, went straight to work. And hi, everybody's suiting on. Hi, everybody, m- every too many names. Got into the, you know, let's get the first scene up, which was the family scene in Resident Evil Village. And this is Lady D. It's like, hi, Lady D. We're like, Maggie, nice to meet you. <laughs> Let's talk after the scene. It was literally like, oh, well, I'll meet all of you after the scene. Let's get into the scene. So I pretty much met everybody as their characters. Wow. First, which was a trip. because
1: yeah.
0: Then, you know, Maggie was like, no, bring it to me. And then we are like, whoa, I'm going to work with you. This is going to be great. I'm going to play with you. I absolutely know you as an actor now. And you're playful and you're, and you're fearless. And I dig it, and we are going to be best friends. <laughs> and, you know, luckily, both of us are, are not assholes, I hope. And we just got on really well afterwards. I was like, dude, you're amazing. Who are you? Tell me all about you. know, And Maggie and I became good friends. And then I remember walking down towards Formosa, where we did the voiceover, later after we wrapped on the main shooting. And I was walking along with her, and I said, Maggie, I'm going to give you a speech, a mini speech as a friend that I gave Brian Decker. <laughs> you are going to be huge after this game and it's gonna get weird that's the speech you were <laughs> speech right it's gonna be huge <laughs> it's gonna get weird look after yourself but you, it's gonna be amazing like that's essentially I said the same thing to Brian I said Brian dude you are amazing it's, Brian Deckard's a lovely character as well he's a great human being but yeah I said to Maggie and went this is gonna get weird <laughs> it, it, that, it and did. that it did <laughs> <laughs> and she deserves all of the weirdness <laughs> she's no, she's a truly great actor a, tr- a great actor and still young you know, she's not even, she hasn't even peaked yet, man. Right. Can you imagine? Yeah. God. And she's an in Orin the Red. She plays in Bald's Gate 3 mm-hmm. as well. Another great uh, role. We some, another great role. We've got some terrific actors in this. Like the origin character, the companions, um, the, the non-playable companions, the 248 other actors who are all brilliant and genius. Even those people playing the tiny little multi roles of 30 characters, whatever. They all bring it. And I know that because I was a director on it. Mm. and they all brought it all these actors playing these little small roles to the bigger roles the medium size whatever everybody brought it their a game to every single role and they all worked their buns off do you know what i mean it, it was a really amazing yeah. including the mocap and audio technicians that also went with them and including all the devs at Larian. people threw their souls into this game
1: it comes across think, on the screen
0: yeah that's cool to hear that mm. now, i love this game as a player it's an amazing achievement but to see the passion feel the passion is a beautiful thing it really is
1: what would you say is the best acting advice you've received and who gave it to you
0: a friend of mine who was actually my surrogate grandfather a wild guy called amazing actor called roy detrice he gave me a couple of pieces of advice one of them was um if they audition you they think you're good enough to do the role another piece of advice he always gave me was um don't judge your characters that's that's not the actor's job it's the audience's job you have to be unvain as an actor you can be vain as a human being, <laughs> as a, as a normal life. You can be vain. That's cool. You, you know what? You be, be you do you. But as an actor, you cannot be vain. You cannot judge your characters for the actions they take. All you have to do is just walk beside them, or walk in their shoes. Actually, not beside them. You have to walk in their shoes for them to fulfill their story. You can't judge them. I don't play villains. I play morally grey people.
1: Mm, yeah, <laughs> do you
0: know, and I'm being serious. Like yeah. I don't ever use the term villain unless it's a shorthand because I'm in the middle of a conversation as I mean but I don't see them as villains um but I love them actually I love my characters so Roy who died a few years ago was 93 when he f- died 92 when he retired from acting he was the the voice he was he was the actor behind the voice of uh, the um the audiobooks of Game of Thrones he okay. did all of the Game of Thrones books and he was in Game of Thrones as a, as a cameo character as well but he he did stuff like Mozart he did stuff like amazing films like all the way I mean. 70, 80, 70 years no yeah 70 odd years of acting uh as a career wow it's amazing so really interesting amazing human being and really helped me a lot actually and i miss him quite a lot he was a very um he was mad he was <laughs> utterly mad and lovely and a brilliant actor a really cool human being yeah i miss him a lot yeah. great
1: advice another question i like to ask everyone uh, yeah, just because you never know uh Have you ever had an experience you would consider supernatural (laughs) or paranormal?
0: My twin and I have had a lot of funky stuff between us. I don't think that's supernatural, though.
1: I think it's quantic. Mm.
0: I believe in quantic abilities. Thin lines. Yeah, I think it, why not? I Mm -hmm. mean, isotopes from either side of the planet have been proved to simultaneously change, split 80,000 miles away from each other in an experiment that was conducted and proved. That's a quantic level shift, right? A change on a quantic level. I think human beings have a capacity to understand, as all animals, all beings do, have connection to the Quantic thing, what well, I'm not a scientist, so the Quantic the thing, the Quantic, you know, <laughs> mishmash, the Quantic, uh, what do you call it, uh, you know, stuff, stuff, yeah. <laughs> stuff, whatever it's called. It's not a Quantic realm, it's a Marvel thing, <laughs> but like, you know, the Quantic level of existence we're all connected to it because obviously we are because we we're, we're made of atoms and molecules right so there is something about that i think i think we're connected in a way that we don't possibly understand but mm. then accidentally can trigger you know i've definitely had a stories of people knowing that a family member is in jeopardy and going to them and finding them choking or something like that it happens and i don't think it's supernatural i think it's more interesting than supernatural mm-hmm. i think it's real just in a way that we haven't we can't perceive you know well um, animals can see infrared that's a superpower for a human being, not yeah. for an animal. Yeah. We can exist in any environment using tools. For an animal, that's a superpower. <laughs> you know, a dog goes, "How do you do that? That's magic! You don't have fur. That's amazing. <laughs> you went to the Arctic and you're alive. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's about perspective. Yeah. And I think there's something about um, sentient, uh, high-functioning sentient creatures that we haven't got to yet. Not supernatural there.
1: I think uh, it was Arthur C. Clarke, that famous quote where he said, you know, magic is just technology that we don't understand.
0: Yeah. It's just my own. If, if, uh, you know, a superior race of aliens came down to this planet with technology, then would be every day for us would be magic. Right. Take a human being 500 years ago, flash forward to now, the whole world is magic and chaos (laughs) and probably (laughs) awful because of the pollution and everything, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's all about perspectives. Yeah, I don't believe in supernatural stuff, really. I like the idea of it. I think it's, it's cool fun. As hell. <laughs> I think it's cool. I yeah. think ghost stories are cool. I think supernatural stories are cool. I don't buy it, but but I dig it as an idea. It's very cool. It's awesome. Fun. Zombies, man. Love a zombie movie. Hey. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I do. You just mentioned Romero earlier. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's it. Don't believe in zombies, but dig the idea. <laughs> right, right.
1: And you know, out of all the projects you've worked on. It- which one would you consider the most challenging? Is the one you lost the most sleep over?
0: Um, none of them really. I've never had a bad day in the volume. I've mm. had challenging days in the volume throughout my career of just physically hitting a wall and burning out. And that's happened only really about four times in my career, where one time in Japan where I went was on three, I was crisscrossing the time zones and countries, literally going from one thing to the next to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, very grateful for that experience. And my body just gave up and Mm. organs started literally shutting down. And I was still working, but I just not wanting to go into details because it's disgusting. I'd eat something and it would just go through. Right. Yeah. yeah uh and i thought i was dying <laughs> not in a melodramatic way i was just like my body doesn't seem to be able to function properly which is a problem because i don't think food is going to help me right now so i should get and see the doctor and i was like okay like something clearly is seriously wrong with me you know is it covid or something this is right at the beginning of the pandemic as well right and he went no your body's basically in a medical way fatig- fucked. it's fatigued i was wow. like that's insane I'm, I'm getting five hours sleep a night i'm training but I'm, I'm i feel loads of energy and i'm working all day he went you're getting five hours <laughs> of sleep at night and you're training and you're working all day. Your body is fatigued. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. So I have definitely had those moments, but I'm very blessed and very grateful and very lucky that all the people I've been working with have been exceptional and lovely people. And I have never, genuinely have never had a bad day in the volume working in games it's just been joyous really so my challenge is just that i'm a workaholic and i push myself Mm. probably harder than anybody i know which is great because i I, i'm very grateful to be have the opportunity to do that and i get physical burnout and that's what my challenge is gotcha
1: So, Neil, just to put a bow on everything here, why don't you tell us what's on the horizon for you and what you can share without getting in trouble? I cannot tell you anything. Is that? that. (laughs) (laughs) I've gotten in trouble for that, too. (laughs) (laughs) Let's
0: see if he's really on the ball with this one. So, breaking NDA aside. (laughs) uh, No, dude, I can't tell you. I can tell you that I've got like five projects at the moment. A couple of things we're bidding on for my production company, and I'm directing on something.
1: Are you, okay. You're a gamer, Neil, right? Sorry. To, I'm a gamer, You're aware of Alan Wake 2?
0: I am aware of it. I have not had the chance. I'm still playing my way through BG3, man. I tried a bit of Starfield. I'm really obsessed with Cyberpunk 2.0, by the way. Yeah. I think it was genius. It's the game that I always wanted it to be. but Obviously, you know, it didn't work out so well in the beginning. But now, it is the game it was supposed to be alan wake too super excited for that but i still have spider-man that I haven't even touched yet mm-hmm. there's so many games this year is a beast for games <laughs> it really. is and there's at least eight games that i have been promising so i will play them alan wake is now on there as well i've heard incredible things from it
1: it was just like our conversation here you know i asked matthew peretta who plays alan wake you know matthew what's Ooh. what's coming up what's coming up you know well you know alan is so, coming out in october yeah and i'll release yeah. it and they, he was not supposed to say that Oh, well, that's how it happened. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's not even your fault. Right. Right. Exactly. That's what <laughs> I said. Like, you are blameless. <laughs>
0: You're like, well, thank you for the interview. I'm just washing my hands right now. It, and like, I you know, even mentioned you know, his NDA beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> it, it happens. Tom Holland is apparently notorious for that stuff. Yeah. take yeah. a poster of something live on stream and, you know, it happens, too Right. That's not malicious. That's just like accidental. Yeah. I felt um, terrible. But yeah. No, I don't feel terrible. Dude, the world is spinning. It's absolutely right. Alec <laughs> Wake is going to be an awesome game, from what I've heard. So it's going to be great. But yeah, no, I think that's the thing. It's it's always an interesting thing as an actor. You can't talk about the stuff that you're passionately involved with until years later, usually. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Because then yeah. you go years later, you're like, oh, yeah, I, I did the thing. That's right. Right. And that was interesting about Baldur's Gate because we were filming very late in the cycle. And that's why it was really interesting when it came out because we, we just finished. Some of the tidying up stuff that we had to do, um, which was great because then we, we were still in it. You know, it was mm-hmm. very exciting and very. I'm feel I'm feel lucky that actually that everybody decided to delay the game until that until the release date, and so we could do the extra stuff and then we could come out and everything. And yeah. it was so awesome because we were still riding high on the performances and the experience of that and the, and seeing everybody as well. We didn't lose contact with anybody. That was really cool. I really like that.
1: My wife will be pleased. <laughs> oh man, for your wife, I would
0: have, I would have ripped it a lot weirder than that. If I knew it was your wife.
1: <laughs> Hello, darling. I'm with your husband,
0: having the most intimate dining experience, darling. It's quite scandalous, actually. The wages had to knock five times in the door. We're making so much noise.
1: All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Neil. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time.
0: Monsters' madness and magic
1: <laughs>
0: Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon heavy metal podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. All with in depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove
1: of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.